so good to see you. We've been in this series, and if you're here, you've been here for a while. We're in a, fe- a series, excuse me, on First John, and go there with me in your Bibles. In what we've been talking about is this is a book to tell Christians how they know that they're in fellowship with God their Father. That is what this book is about. And he starts off in chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3. If you're there, say yes. If not, let's get there, and we're going to start in 1 John chapter 3. We've uh, done the first two chapters the last two weeks here. And so he talks about three, three concepts of the triune God and how that relates to our intimacy level. You know, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about that in these next few moments. But his first point is in the first three verses, he looks at this and he says, number one, it's wrapped up in the unique love of the Father. It's wrapped up in the unique love of the Father. Verse one, it says, see or behold, depending on your translation of your Bible, which means in other words, take a good look at this. Check this out. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, children of God. Victory comes by knowing your daddy. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Victory comes by knowing who your daddy is. And so I I just hope you understand this. That moment that you came to Christ, if you know Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, whether you call it born again, save, redeem, however you want to say it, that, that moment you came, you found God, he touched you. When you were converted the royal blood began flowing through your veins. I want you to know that. The royal blood of the Father began to flow through your veins at that moment. And so you may say, well, you know, my daddy told me I was a nobody, and I've got to ask you, which daddy? And so you've got to look at this. He says, you are my children. You are the real deal, and he is your real dad. And then he continues, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world rejected Jesus Christ because they didn't think that Jesus would ever, the King of Kings, would ever come in the flesh, and they did not know his uniqueness. As a believer in Christ, you can know the uniqueness of the Father. And he goes on, he says that, that beloved, now we are children of God. We are children of God when? Now. We are children of God when? Now. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Right now, you and I are royalty. We get a little glimpse of that and understand it a little bit, a microcosm. But it's, it's going to be greater when we see him face to face. We will be then like him. That's going to be a very interesting event that the Bible calls the rapture of the church, the rapture of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to be a very interesting event. How many of you know that Jesus Christ is going to come back and get those that love him? Amen? I just want to make sure you understand that. 
that, that we understand that he's coming back and he is going to rapture the church. The dead in Christ will rise first and those that are living will follow them. That's going to be quite a spectacular moment when we're looking up because, wow, I mean, just to think of that and all that's going to take place. But the dead in Christ will rise first and those that are on this land that are living that know him will follow them, catch them in the air. Going to be a powerful moment. You don't have to wait until the rapture to be like Jesus. How many of you know that? That's true. Verse 2, and everyone who has, who has this hope in him, excuse me, purifies him just as he is pure. He talks about, number two, the purifying work of the Son. Waiting for Jesus to do a work on the inside of you while he is doing a work on the outside of you at the same time. You can be changed right now. The love of God, when you are experiencing it, is transforming. How many of you know that? That God's love is so transformative in our life. It literally transforms us. Now, many of you ladies are basically sitting next to a man that basically broke you down throughout the years. You might not even loved him. You might not even have liked him, but it took some time, and he broke you down. He broke you down and was persistent and stayed after you and was long-suffering. And, and so, you know what I'm talking about. At, at that point, you said, you know, wait a minute. I don't know if I like this guy. Um, you know, and then it is in those moments that you men went to work. I mean, just throw that down. And I've told you a story, Chris and I, many times. My, my college buddies around me said, that girl's way out of your league. And I took that as a challenge, and I got the girl, right? I just want you to know that. You tell that to any man, they're going for it, right? So they're like, uh-uh, mm-mm, I'm not going to let you get that. That is a challenge. And then you systematically broke her down, and it went from, I don't like him, to, well, he's all right. You know, he's kind of nice. Oh, I love him. I love him. <laughs> And it took a while, but you finally broke down that, that barrier. The, the love of God is so potent. It is a purifying agent, and it can do what no rule book could ever do. It can totally transform you on the inside. Christ in you is the hope of glory, the Bible says. That love affair with him brings purification back to you, and you enter into this love, and that love is so transforming in your life. The third is the uniqueness of God's love produces the transformation within us. It's not only found in God's love, but verses four through eight, it's related to the sanctifying work Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion against God any amount of times you do it. I'm just going to break that passage down very quickly for you, but if you want to look at it more. Anytime you are rebellion and in rebellion and sin, it's lawlessness. That's the way Scripture is. You can't change it. And you know, it continues to say that he was manifested, you know, he, it was manifested to, to take away our sin. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. We've been talking about this word abide. And we've been talking about in 1 John, he talks a lot about abide. This is the first John that wrote the gospel of John. This is the same John. That he is talking in here about abiding, which means to hang out and remain in him. 
If we don't hang out with Christ, our flesh will naturally grow more. It's ongoing intimacy with Jesus Christ that keeps the sin from growing in our lives. Isn't that true? That the closer we are to God through Jesus Christ, it is a purifying agent that works in us to combat the sin in our lives. Little children, verse 7, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Don't let anyone fool you. That's what he's saying, that you can be in fellowship with God and be unrighteous at the same time. Don't let anybody fool you. In a world, this is a church that believes in the grace of God, but some have made grace so big that they feel that they can continue to live in sin, practice sin, live in lawlessness, and still be in right relationship with the Father. That is not true according to the word. How many of you are with me say yes? That is true. So you, as you look at this, he's saying the one who practices sin, practices means that is does it, is of the devil. Now you're like, oh my, that's pretty strong. This is where it gets a little confusing. That if you practice sin, many people think, oh, well, you're unsaved. That's not what it says. There are visible and invisible sins. Now, if that's true and you look at that and say, wow, if you practice sin, you're unsaved, I think we're all done in here, right? We might as well just go out the door right now because we've all sinned. And we've all practiced sin sometime or another in our lives. But he's not saying that. When you sin, your actions reflect evil influence. That's what he's talking about. All sin is sourced in the devil, right? Sin is not sourced in God. Is that true? Sin is sourced in the devil. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? To destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy that. He made them powerless, and Jesus was revealed to render the devil powerless in his influence over you. And so what happens is when we have an addiction, whatever it may be physically, mentally, spiritually in our lives, it is we get under that influence and we allow that influence to control us. And it's why we go back time and time and time again telling you what to do. Under the influence means that it is controlling you. That that, that thing becomes your boss and tells you. Jesus wants you to be so addicted to him that it overrules what everything else is telling you to do. So addicted, so addicted. He goes on in verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Born of God. We still sin, but being born of God, we don't have to sin, right? Right? Voluntarily, we don't have to. He's saying, and he's pointing out a very good thing here. When we came to Christ, we received a new nature. That new nature is in God's nature, and there's no darkness, remember, in God at all. Inside of you came a new nature when you accepted Christ. Behold, you're a new creation, right? Amen, church? It's a different life, he's saying. A brand new life that is still operating in an old shell, right? Because these bodies are... They're failing us, right? Day by day. Some of you are like, that's just so negative. Well, that's what the Bible says. And Paul says, this earthly tent, it's going away. This earthly tent is only going to be here for so long in all of our lives. But we have a new nature that is operating in an old shell 
that God, as we allow him, continues to redeem. He concludes this section in verse 10. He said, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Have you ever told a woman who was not pregnant, congratulations on your pregnancy? Have you? That one hurts. You'll be lucky if you didn't get a black eye out of that one, I guess, but right? He wants you to tell whether the children of God are the real thing or not. This is not about legalism and dangling things over people's head. To tell if you are obviously a Christian or not, that just because you carry a Bible or you worship in a certain way or you can speak certain Christian words but do not have faith in God and love other Christians, hey, man, something's wrong. How many of you know it's pretty impossible to have a cold or a flu without having symptoms, right? There are symptoms when you have a cold or when you have the flu. It's, true. it's pretty impossible to have fellowship with God and it not show up. It has symptoms that are recognizable. There are symptoms that will come out because you have abided with the Father through Jesus Christ and now there are symptoms that work out from your life. Some come intangible, but most of them come in intangible ways such as love and joy and peace and all those wonderful things that Scripture tells us in many, many, many other things. But there are symptoms that are recognizable when somebody has been hanging out with the Father. What are the signs and symptoms of a believer who's gotten close to God? Verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. What is he talking about? The proof of your intimacy vertically with God is your love for others of his children horizontally among other believers. The proof of your intimacy vertically with God is your love for his other children horizontally to love one another. That's it. There's, that's a symptom. That is the ultimate symptom. This theme is so dominant in 1 John. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you have seen this, do, this dominant theme that's come up time and time again. It is the symptomatic expression of intimacy that comes forward because I've hung out with the Father. And so you have symptoms that are recognizable. And you know them as well because when you walk up to somebody, you know that they've abided with the Father, that you realize there's symptoms in their life. Man, I can sense something that's different. So you look at this and you say, wow, it is a symptomatic expression. It's a special kind of love set aside for the family of God. What does love mean? Well, I know there's a lot of definitions, but... I'll give you this one. You can just start working on it. Love is the responsibility to demonstrate selfless concern for those in Christ as a response to the grace of God given to us. Love is the responsibility to demonstrate selfless concern for those in Christ as a response to the grace that God has given to us. Biblical love, as you look into it, is the word agape, is a responsibility, it's commandable love and it's commendable love because it's commandable because it involves choices. It's response and responsibility at the same time. How many of you are following me? Biblical love is not only the response to it, but it is the responsibility that you get 
from it that it is commandable. When a believer loses sight of God's grace to them, they will lose sight of loving somebody else. Some people are hard to love, amen? Yes. They're, they're not a Gucci, Gucci, goo kind of person, right? When we forget that we stand before a perfect God as an imperfect man or woman all day long, and God has to extend his grace to us, and we forget and we don't want to love somebody else, things have gone amiss in our spiritual walk with the Lord. Can I hear an amen, church? There are symptomatic expressions and signs that Scripture says you can see when that is not happening and when it is happening. That is. And so do you know why God loves you? Because he chose to love you. He chose to love you because he did that. Failure to love is failure to know God. Notice, I'm, I'm, I'm defining the word love, not the word like. Like has to do with my emotions, your emotions, your feelings in the, manner, in the matter. I don't like him. Uh, you know, that is, I don't have feelings or I don't like her. There are some personalities that you will never get along with, but we are called to love one another. Can I have an amen? Amen. To understand it, he gives the opposite to what he means. He gives actually the contradiction to what he's talking about. Look in verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. What he doesn't mean, he, what he does not mean, he takes two physical brothers to make a point about spiritual brothers and sisters. This is the first act of hatred in the Bible. If you rewind it and go back, this is the very first act of hatred. You can't blame the social structure to society because of hatred. And we live in a world right now that wants to blame the social strata and structure of the society for the hatred that they own and have in their heart. If you go back to the original portion of scripture and you look at this hatred, it didn't have anything to do with social structure to society. Hatred toward Abel was related to Cain's lack of spiritual life. They both have the same daddy. They went to church regularly. How do we know? Because it says in the Bible, they offered sacrifices regularly. Cain envied Abel's relationship with God. Jealousy set in. Jealousy came upon them. He set a plan to destroy Abel. Jealousy, envy, to murder. Jealousy, to envy, to murder. There is a lot of murder that's going on in our world. We see it. I don't have to talk long about it, you know. It's horrific. Many people never get to that point, but many people get to the point where they are out to murder somebody else's character, destroy people's reputation, their promotion or opportunity that they may have. David killed Bathsheba's husband. He physically did that. Verse 12, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Do not marvel, brother and sister, if the world hates you. Yep. He says, don't be surprised if people who don't know God don't like you. 
The love in the New Testament was so thick with the believers, was so close with one another, they were accused of crimes they didn't commit. If you go back in and you look at it, they were accused of crimes. I'm talking about believers in the New Testament. I'm talking about born again, true, real deal people that knew their daddy in heaven that, were, that said, people said, oh, even the religious, you did a crime, you did a crime, you need to pay for that. And they didn't do those crimes. They were convicted based on falsehood and lies of the enemy. Nero said, you love each other so much, why don't you love each other in the lion's den together? He had them herded to the lions together. And when they were in there, they held each other's hands and would not let loose while the lions tore them to shreds. God says, the world, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Do not marvel. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brother. He who does not love his brother abides in death. We know what he's talking about. He's talking to the brethren. He's talking to believers. Abide the ongoing intimacy. It's possible to be living in the realm of death. They're not saved. They are living extracted from the life of God because they hate. And it was from that moment on after the hatred and the murder, Cain turned into a wanderer apart from a relationship with God. Listen, I want you to think about just a moment. There are people in your life that have hated other people, that have so much bitterness, envy, jealousy in their heart that they've done certain things and now they are a wanderer. Maybe you're today, maybe today you're in the sound of my voice, you may be listening from across the world today, but maybe in your heart today, you have hated somebody, you've hated the father, you've hated a sibling, you've hated a brother and sister in Christ. And you are now a wanderer. Is that the end? No, thankfully not. But God is offended when we hate another person. Because why? He says, you're no longer abiding in me. God seems so far away from so many Christians that go to church every Sunday, they have so much. Why? Because there's so much resentment and hatred of other believers. He says, listen, you can't live in my house anymore. That's not, he doesn't hate us. He's saying, because I love you. He says, your prayers are not answered because of it. And, there, this, I'm, and this next statement, I'll tell you as I did the first service, this does not come from sarcasm at all, but deeply in my spirit that there are so many people praying for a spiritual awakening when there is so much racism and bigotry and classism and culturalism and any kind of other isms until those isms become wasisms, there will not be a spiritual awakening in our land. I don't care which way you want to cut it. I'm not in control of it, I know that. But his word says it. 
But in here, in these walls, at this church, at Abundant Life Church, there's one thing that I can answer for. There's one thing that I can speak up to and about that I want you to know that, that we as children can get along in the body. And in here, it can be different from what's outside of these walls, that everybody who walks in the doors of Abundant Life Church who loves Christ or does not even love Christ, irrespectful of their background, where they live, the money they make, the color of their skin, is an equally welcome member of the family of God, period, at Abundant Life Church. Amen. A couple weeks ago when I spoke up about racism here, as well as many people did in our land, what happened to Charlottesville, I know there's an older generation of people that are in here. You've seen a lot. You've seen a lot of this. Don't grow hardened. There's a young generation of people that are watching us. And I will tell you something. It angers them. It resounds within their spirit. This is wrong. Don't become calloused. Don't become calloused these days. It's because we've seen it again. God, we need a fresh revelation of you if we're calloused. That this is not okay with God, and it's not okay with us. See, some of you are like, wow, you're getting political. No, long, sir, ma'am, long before this ever hit politics, it was already in the word of the Lord. Because he is the creator of all mankind. We're afraid to speak up about this because sometimes what happens is we think, oh, the love of God in me. I've just got to be so loving. I can't speak up about it. Let me tell you something. As a believer, you have removed yourself from the anointing of God if you can't speak into these things in this day. There is a way to speak into it, and it is out of love, but the Bible says grace and truth, truth and grace. Yeah, you can come at it in a bad way, a bitter way, a way of hatred. That's not God's way. But there is a way to come at it and contradict the culture that is out there. God has given you and I a voice. Let's use it for his glory. It's amazing as we look at this. How did Jesus show us that he loved us? Well, there's a demonstration of love. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That scripture right there would just make you want to close the Bible and say, that's terribly convicting. That's a powerful verse. You can't just read over that verse and say it doesn't affect me because in Christ it will. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. How did Jesus show us that he loved us? One, he laid it down. It was voluntarily, not mandatory. If you have to make a person love you, it's not love. Love your brother, love your sister, love your family, love your mom. Second, it was vicarious. What does that mean? For the benefit of somebody else. The other person was on Jesus' mind. The other person's status was on Jesus' mind when he hung on the cross and he died. He knew in his mind that he was dying. For those that were hopeless and helpless, it was for the benefit of, somebody else, benefit of somebody else. God wants us to do that exact same thing because he laid down his life for us voluntarily and sacrificially that we would have the other person in mind as well. Now, you, can, you and I can only die once. I'm talking physical death, right? You can only die once. 
My mentor, my mentor in my classes says, hey, pastors, let me tell you something. You can only be a martyr once in your life. Like, get over yourself. We can only die physically once, right? Spiritually, we die, but then we raise the new life. We said, no, I want not my spirit. I want his spirit, and I want something greater. You can only die once for the brethren, the group. How do we lay down our lives as a church for the brethren? Verse 17, 18. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. He, he knows that you can say you love everybody and love nobody. He says, if you see another member of the family who, who is in, in need, uh, and he says, wow, you just let it go. You say, oh, there's just too many needs. I come into Abundant Life Church and there's just too many needs. And they talk about needs here that we have an area, you know, and whatever it's kids or students or small groups or, you know, helping with coffee or worship or whatever it may be. And all of those things, helping teach a class. It's so overwhelming. I don't know. It doesn't need to be overwhelming because it's what we talked about last week. It doesn't need to be overwhelming as a believer why you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit taking up residence inside of you, and when you hear of something that makes you jump, like, I heard that need, and I'm going to go talk to that person. I'm going to go meet that spiritual need. Why? Because your heart was pricked by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit says, I'm talking to you. No, you and I can't meet every need. We're not the Lord. He is. But you and I can meet a need at least. That we respond to the poke and the prod of the Holy Spirit. That is the anointing of the Spirit because he's live and he's active all the time. He pricks our hearts and says, wow, I need to do this. And so, you know, God will never talk to you about a need he can't meet. He says, if you see and withhold it, verse 17, you can't meet it without having it. You didn't close your heart to the brother, you closed your heart to me. What if Jesus never gave up heaven? Thank God he did. When Jesus gave up heaven, he saved us from hell. Verse 18, he sums up what he says at this point. Little children, he's talking to us, let us love not in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. He says, love has more to do with what you do than what you say. It involves deed and truth. The way you measure whether you love is what your lips say your life supports. Love is not a guilt trip based on truth. That is not it. It is selfless concern expressed to one another. James chapter 2 says if you see someone in need, they need a, they need a warm coat or a blanket or, you know, they, they need food. He says you need to meet that need. You need to meet that need. You need to meet that need. That's why we're doing coats and blankets, one of the many outreaches that we're doing this year to those. There's kids. There's, there's students. There's adults. There's people that need a coat in the months to come. There's people that need a blanket. Maybe you have a gently used and you could wash it up and bring it in or maybe God would ask you to, to, to buy a coat or a blanket that, that you would bring in and put it in the bin in the foyer that you are meeting that need because you see it, you see it and you go, do it. John is saying they don't need a sermon, they need a sandwich. Do something to address the need. There's enough sermons going around. Aren't you thankful God didn't sit up in heaven and just say, I love y'all. I love y'all. I love you. I'm just going to stay up here. I love y'all. I really do. I love you. No, really, I love you. No. God demonstrated his love for us and why we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Now, through the end of this chapter, he gives three rewards that will give to every believer who loves the brethren. See, what you do horizontally will get special attention 
vertically. Special attention, not that I said it, he said it. The first is given to us, 19 and 20, and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God says, the first thing I will do for my children who is loving, who go out of their way to express and demonstrate the love of God is give them an assured heart. Why do we need assured heart? Remember Jesus said, my peace I give to you. To his disciples, I'm about ready to leave here, but my peace that I have, I'm about ready to give to you. Oh, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, I'm going to give you this, and I'm going to give you an assured heart, the inner tranquility, regardless of the external circumstances. When we are demonstrating love to others, God will give us peace, even when our hearts condemn us. That's what it says. Our hearts condemn us? Crazy. Let's talk about that. Martha and Mary. How many remember that story? Mary and Martha. Martha tried to put Mary on a guilt trip. Remember? Mary. I'm in here in the kitchen, and she's in there sitting at Jesus' feet. That's crazy. I'm making all this food. I'm working hard. I'm sweating in here. I'm doing all this work. But Mary is in there sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is crazy. She's listening to him while I'm doing the work. Many people live in guilt all the time. No, you know, people trying to make us feel bad because we're not doing what they want us to do. We put guilt on one another to, in order to control their actions. And the last time I looked, that's called manipulation, just to call for what it is. I mean, are there any experts in guilt in the room? I'm not going to see your hands. I'm not going to look. John says, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. God knows whether that's truth talking or guilt working. God is the one who assures our hearts before him. God will rain down peace to overrule guilt. That's a powerful blessing. Sometimes you need peace more than you need money. Can I hear an amen? It may be money that's keeping you from peace. Martha, Martha. Man, when Jesus calls your name twice, <laughs> you better sit up, right? That's what he tells. Martha, Martha. Careful. You're worried about too many things. Mary has chosen the better part, and she's staying right here. Jesus knew who he was. He was the son of God. You're not going to make me feel guilty, and you shouldn't make Mary feel guilty for sitting at my feet. Two, verse 21 is answered prayer. Not only assured heart, but it's answered prayer. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God, 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Why don't we pray like we should? Simple, we don't have confidence in the Lord. Oh my God, I don't have enough time to preach this point today. Pastor Ryan, you're the spiritual life leader of this church. We're, we're trying to get people to come and pray on Sunday mornings. And there are, there are a few people that have come and have committed and you've worked hard at that. But where are other people that want to come and pray at the church on Sunday morning to prepare our hearts? I know this is convicting. I'm preaching it. I preached this thing to me a thousand times before I stepped to this pulpit today. This is not easy. I never said it was. Why? We don't go to him because we have confidence in ourselves rather than confidence in God that he can do it and he will do it when we pray. He will do it. See, we've lost this sense that when I come into prayer that I have a one-on-one -on -one audience with the creator of the universe. What happens is we've got a custom in our, our mind or believe the work of the devourer that says, oh, you're just another person that comes into his presence of the billions of believers. You're just another person. No, 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 no. That's not what scripture tells me. When I come into his presence, I got a one-on-one -on -one audience with the Father in heaven. 
Amen? Don't believe the lie of the enemy. There should be boldness when we pray. This is a definitive expectation. Pray first and do our part second. Don't do your part first and pray second. Amen? Finding he will give you a deeper... How many of you still love me? You okay with me? Okay. I'm just speaking truth. I'm just trying to get it out here and we're going to be done. Finally, he will give you a deeper level of intimacy, 23 and 24. And this is commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandment, commandment, excuse me, abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now he brings in, he brought in the father, he brought in the son, now he brings in the Holy Spirit. He says, you will know of this abiding relationship, a deeper level of intimacy because you love. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Revelation chapter three. Who's he speaking to? He's saying that, behold, I stand at the door and knock and, and I will come in and I will sup with him. If he opens, sup, what's up? No, supper. We're gonna eat. We're gonna have fellowship. When a guy invites a girl to dinner, it's not like, girl, you look like you're starved. <laughs> no, it's, I'm, I wanna get to know you, Right? And I want you to know me. How do you open the door? That was written to the church of Laodicea. They were wealthy in their pockets, but poor in their spirit. They were so selfish, so ingrown. They prided themselves in what they had. He says, when you do to the least to one of these, you've done it to me. How do you open the door? By opening the door of love. Then Jesus comes in. He says, I will sup with you. I will have supper with you. That's powerful from the king. Do you understand when you go deeper, the dynamic that takes place? Do you know fish never get upset when it rains and storms? You ever think about that? No matter how violent the storm, the storm never penetrates below or beneath 24 feet. So when the storm comes and the waves start rocking, they go to 25 feet and below. See, there's a dynamic that we will never receive from the Lord if we're only willing to be shallow all the time in Him. He said, but if you abide in me, He said, I'll take you down and we'll go down there below 24 feet. Oh, I know it's rocking out there. But down here, He said, I got you wrapped up and I got you safe because I'm your Father and I love you. Amen? That's the dynamic that He's wanting to give to you and me. I'm not saying you don't have it. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've abided in the Lord. You have an intimate fellowship with the Lord. But I pray that we come on this journey together as a church that we would hang out with the Father even just a little bit longer than what we have and allow Him to speak to our hearts and allow Him to touch us so that, why? Well, because when this is right, this is right. There's going to be an amazing powerful outpouring when you and I get to go deeper in him.